Greetings and welcome to episode 23 of Late Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the latest game in the franchise, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host for this intergalactic shindig, Fozzer Forrester, and joining me in the Orange Sidewinder, we have Lave Station Chief of Operations, John Stabler. Good evening. Lave Station's Head of Entertainment, Christopher Jarvis. Hello. And finally, the big guy himself, Station Commander, Alan Stroud. Apparently I'm a big guy. Awesome. <laughs> Greetings, guys. Uh, this is an exciting episode because for the first time in a while, we actually have some news. Um, yes, indeed, we've got uh, quite a lot to talk about in this show. But before we go munching our way through the veritable feast of development news, let's find out what people have been up to this week. Uh, Mr. Jarvis, start us off. Yeah, well, I've uh, finished um, my draft of uh, my short story for the anthology, pending, obviously, whatever fantastic books editors have to say about it. But I got it to a state where I was, I was happy for an editor professional editor to actually look at it and i've also been working on trying to get escape velocity done which is very close actually as of this evening i've completely done the sound effects and ambience and editing edit it just it needs a music and final mix uh, so hopefully uh, that will actually be out before this podcast and also this week i've put together a video uh, update for the fantastic books kickstarter um so if you want to hear about all about uh, why I love audio drama, why I make audio drama, um, and what some of my influences are, then you can go and have a watch. Uh, it's on the Fantastic Elite Fiction Kickstarter page somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, not sure how far down it'll be by the time this podcast goes out, but obviously that's tinyurl.com forward slash fantastic audio. Um, and I've also put it up on my own website. So if you go to www.radiotheatreworkshop.com, uh, the video is also there. And from there, you can link through to the Kickstarter uh, and, and back us because it'll be great. And it is great. I have to say, I, I listen to it, and it, it's quite exciting because you know it's the first you know, it's the first insight we've got about your your story, the Children of Zeus. Just that small sort of teaser just means I, I just can't wait until the the anthology is actually completed and we get a chance to read these stories because I think that combined with your uh, dramatic reading of it, I just thought it was uh, it's going to be a fantastic book, mate. You've done a great job with that one. So, yeah, cheers, thank you. Cool. Moving on to Mr. Stroud. What have you been up to? Oh, busy, busy. Work has has kind of taken me over a little bit at the moment. Um, We're currently sort of looking at a few things to do with uh, some national teaching stuff. So, um, yeah, I went to a conference all day in London yesterday, so I was very tired. Got up at five, got home very late. A few other projects on at work at the moment. My students are currently out shooting horror films, so uh, back in and talking to them tomorrow. Done a little bit of writing. I'm working on a, a competition entry for The Dark Crystal, which is an old 80s film that some of us here have watched <laughs> one of us here is terrified of. And, uh, yeah, they've, they've basically advertised to, um, to get an author to produce the next novel uh, as a prequel to the, the original film in 1982. And I love the film in 1982, love all the material, and um, I'm just in the middle of putting something together for the competition, which closes at the end of the month. If anybody wanted to look, go, um, go on the website to darkcrystal.com and, um, and follow the links. You'll find it, it, it's fantastic. And it's, again, it's another one of those kind of old 80s revivals of um, of stuff that um, you remember from being a child. Um, I've so th- heard when those are updated, they're always rubbish. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I've, I've, but I've, I've, honestly, no, I totally agree with you. That is Dark Crystal is something I'd absolutely love to have a crack at, and I'm just gutted I'm not going to have any time this month to have a go at it myself. Yeah, so when you yeah. say that they, they're going to bring it back, obviously it was a Jim Henson production way back when. Who's bringing it back? It's his daughter. Really? 
Yeah, Cheryl Henson is um, is running the uh, the project, and uh, she's partnered up with a publishing firm and a couple of other people. And they're basically that's you know they're, they're sort of attempting to reboot it. Um, there was a, a plan for a second film a few years after the first one, and it kind of fell through. And since then, there've been some comics released and some graphic novels and other bits and pieces. So there is quite a lot of of, of sort of law, as it were, around um, around the film. So yeah, it you know it's got really interesting sort of vibe to it and uh, different tack to to writing in elite. So obviously I'm sort of switching gears a little bit, which is quite nice, quite refreshing. And yeah, I mean you know may the best writer win. I think uh, there'll be quite a lot of people entering. We won't find out till the end of 2014, so you know plenty of time. But I, I just fancied having a crack at something, and of course you know I'll put it in. If it doesn't get anywhere, then you know you you try for something else, don't you? So I'm not necessarily expecting that um, that anything would come of it, but um, I thought you've got to be in it. Speaking, I mean, you guys have had a had a great week this week, taking the piss out of me because yes, the Dark Crystal has absolutely it scared the sweet bejesus out of me when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know if I just watched it when I was too young, but you know I don't know what they're called, but the the bird like creatures that uh, you know the puppets that are in there just literally scared the absolute crap out of me as a child and i hate it sorry sorry did it literally scare the crap out of i don't you? know how old i was but there was probably a lot of crap coming out of me at that point anyway so you know i'm <laughs> not sure if i can attribute it to the film or not but they're, they're just, they're just oh, that and also i mean the leads uh, the lead sort of character the what you know the hero person yeah you know, they were freaky as well. I mean, I had no warmth for the main character at all. And, uh, no, just it was one of my brother's favourite films, and he you know, used to watch it time and time again. And it always used to scare the absolute crap out of me. So, now good luck on rebooting it, mate. I for one won't be watching it, but you know, good luck on it anyway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, it is it is slightly um, slightly bemusing for for us. Obviously, sat here in the middle of a podcast where. We are in a Skype conversation, and Chris has a Skeksis as his profile character. I have a Skeksis as my profile image, and you have the main character who you've just <laughs> described as being freaky as anything as your profile image. Well, that's okay because so I, I don't have to stare at my profile exactly. picture. I just have to stare at your girl. <laughs> and then we have a rather, rather sort of paler version of John. Yeah, which, as I say, out of all the profile pictures, the one that's scaring me the most this evening is definitely Mr. Stabler. <laughs> Okay, John, what have you been up to, sir? Uh, my new PC's arrived. Ooh. Um, because that's about it, apart from the usual very hard work. Yeah, my new PC's, PC's arrived, and uh, yesterday I set up some RAID disks for storing my data, and that's about it, really. And do you actually know what they do? Because every time I've set up a PC <laughs> and had to... No, because... <laughs> I'll go on that. The only time I have actually sort of set up raid disks, I have no idea what they actually do apart from the fact that I know I have to have them. So I, I go online, I look up a guide, I follow the guide through, I do it, and then I completely forget about them all the way through until I get a new PC and have to do it all over again. You don't have to do it. You can just plug your disks in if you want. You can just have a bunch of disks. Yeah, but raid is better. Yeah. It's a backup thing, really. Yeah. Well, it, well, it depends because I I'm using it because I don't care because I got another backup device for my important stuff. I'm using it just purely as a striped raid, so it's purely for performance only. But yeah, I mean, you can use. <laughs> um, Alan says never use raid in the chat. <laughs> it depends whether you care about the data. If you just want, if you just have data that you know, you know that you perform regular backups, which is what I do, then you can get some performance boosts out of raid, um, having a raid set. That's about it, really. See, there are lots of things where you know there are performance boosts attached to them that um, you know, kind of people uh, say about and, and think about and do. 
And I kind of, there's a few that I kind of go, okay, I'll give that a go. Okay, I'll give that a go. And Raid has been around that long, you know, where people talk about striping and, and everything else. I just kind of, I've never bothered with the hassle, particularly because when you're a video editor, the minute you buy a hard drive, you sit there thinking, great, I've got more space for more videos. That's all you think <laughs> about. So, you know, why would you, why would you duplicate a drive? Oh, that's yeah. what I mean. Is yeah, if you used RAID one, which is mirroring, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. You, but with striping, you you, st- you still get the space. You don't get the redundancy though. Um, but you got you got the speed increase, and, and I will feel that with the video editing that I'm going to be doing. Cool. Well, obviously, we'll come on to that in the community corner because that's quite exciting with the alpha just about upon us. Uh, from my point of view, I've pretty much been focused on the end of November, uh, heading up the Elite Dangerous community uh, Movember campaign that's actually come to a close and very very successful but more on that in the community corner section right let's go on straight away into the development digest for this week and starting us off it's the newsletter number 14 now it's been quite quite quiet out there for news over the last few weeks obviously frontier developments have been hard at work with the alpha and uh, hopefully it means that the alpha is just about ready to drop because we've seen some news coming out of frontier development and ashley's got a newsletter together so in newsletter 14 we talk about asteroids we talk about the pilots uh, suited and booted the you know the uniform for pilots. Uh, we talk a little bit about the cockpit and then about the the incoming alpha. So starting off with asteroids, actually I suppose the asteroids kind of links into uh, into the alpha. Uh, there's obviously some pictures of some very nice asteroids, but they're talking about the various scenarios that you're going to find yourself in in Elite Dangerous. And uh, the first information we've got about the alpha is that the NPC combat scenario, which I think is going to be the first one they drop on us, uh, is going to have various different sorts of environments that we can uh, experience that in, one of which is the asteroid belt, where you've got different asteroids of different densities. What do people think about this? As exciting as as rocks obviously aren't, um, the little piece of concept art they posted, though, showing the, the asteroids and the glowing blue and the streaking engine trails, it's a glorious picture. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And, and actually... Actually, I was going to say that the start of the art diary video where they show the, you know, they, they have the credits come up for, for what's there and you're just sat away from a planet looking at it through an asteroid field. Those rocks, my word, do they look good. They look better than anything I have seen. And I, I've recently watched the, um, the Limit Theory uh, updates and actually the, that, just that static shot of the Elite Dangerous stuff the limit theory stuff is is very cool and very sexy, but actually, just looking at those rocks in uh, the start of that that art diary update, they look better, which I was quite surprised about. The one the one thing I will say about um, all these fantastic pictures with all these asteroids is I didn't realise there were so many rocks in space in the <laughs> frontier universe. It's just rocks everywhere. It's going to be a nightmare to <laughs> circumnavigate everything. In fairness, there were quite a few rocks in uh, in frontier, uh, you know, elite two. You often found uh, the odd random massive boulder in your way when you were. I wouldn't call that a lot of rocks. The odd <laughs> random boulder. Yeah, but every no matter where you went to, you'd always come across one or two of these random boulders. That's a lot of uh, rocks. Well, I'm mean, just looking at this one in the in the newsletter. That planet is in jeopardy. Any, you know, how many? It's going to be pummeled. <laughs> yeah, send up Bruce Willis. No, I was just thinking of a few years ago, there was a big asteroid that went through our system. And I remember reading an article about it online with the headline, phew, that was close. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, let's let's move, look at it from a different point of view then. Okay, so the asteroids are very very pretty. Do we think that it's going to be a great environment to uh, explore with the uh, with the Alpha? Are people looking forward to racing through asteroids? It really ought to be. I mean, every sci-fi movie with a space dogfight, frankly, even Escape Velocity and a bunch of other things I've read, they all feature dogfights in an asteroid mm-hmm. field at some point. So if it's not exciting, a lot of sci-fi writers are going to need to sit down and have a good hard look at themselves. Okay, but I mean, are we expecting to get the same sort of thrill that we had the first time I watched Empire Strikes Back and you know, you see the Millennium Falcon flying through the asteroid belt? Do we want that in Elite Dangerous? Do you think we're going to get there? I think the problem is one of perspective because you you see a lot of stuff in in things where it makes it look exciting where people are, are ducking and banking around you know large asteroids or you know they're sort of skimming between two that are coming close together and someone smacks into them behind them but I think the problem is when you're actually in the ship doing that stuff I think it's it's one of those things I think looks better from an external view perhaps than actually doing it yourself I would disagree with that. I would say the key thing here is that you have to remember graphics is of its time and immersion is related to graphics of its time. So the fact that you are demanding a certain level of photorealism within the graphics that you are looking at right now is completely different to the level of photorealism that you were demanding back in 1984 or 1985 or 1989 or 1993 depending on when you you know you started playing elite or started playing frontier you know you will still have those those wow moments that take you back to you know the films and the things that inspired you when you were you know when you were younger and it won't really matter whether the graphics you know sort of are of a particular threat uh, standard what will matter is that whether they're of a necessary threshold compared to everything else and it's the same in film you know we look back at films that we thought were amazing, um, you know, sort of in terms of the CGI when they were released. And then 10 years later, you look at them and they're not. And some films, very few, that kind of stand the test of time. The interesting thing is actually is if you watch, um, because I've got some of the original pre-digital trailer, um, you know, sort of remastered Star Wars trailers. And if you watch those 70s trailers compared to the remastered versions it is quite surprising just how much has changed and of course in your mind nothing's changed but an awful lot has been done you know to, to make those better cool well i think we can all agree there's going to be an exciting part of the uh, the alpha process racing through asteroids and we'll report back on that as soon as we uh, as soon as we get our hands on the alpha the next section in the newsletter that of the uh, pilots and they're basically the you know, the spacesuits that Frontier are looking at designing. Uh, again, this is a, a section where you know, it really displays how much detail Frontier developments are really investing in this game. I mean, we're not going to actually get walking around in ships or walking around on planets or anything like that until you know, future expansions way down the line. But already they're already sort of putting in place and planning out how that's going to look. And uh, they're saying in the newsletter how obviously they're working with the Oculus Rift and the cockpit and everything else. And at this early stage, they're planning how these things are actually going to be implemented within the universe that they're creating they talk about the how the the spacesuits will obviously incorporate the remlock and how if you experience a sudden depressurization how that's going to flip over your head and you know become your survival suit the one thing which i did like in this newsletter which you guys might uh, might want to comment on is the fact that if you ever suffer a you know a a loss of limb your your spacesuit in uh, in the frontier universe will actually automatically seal that up for you which I thought was quite a cool little uh, little effect. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to know at this stage 
how that's <laughs> going to feature in the game. It's almost a shame in some respects for the fiction that we didn't know about that sooner because that'd be a, a quite a little, a f- quite a fun little thing to write into part of a story. The thing it made me think of mostly was Dead Space, where, where you know people are forever losing limbs. Who knows? Yeah, maybe I- Thargoids are. Uh, Notorious limb severers. <laughs> I was going to say that actually there was a lot in this diary that is confirming sort of little bits of information that are really useful to the fiction writers. Unfortunately for some of us, we've submitted drafts to our publisher and we're waiting on feedback from our <laughs> publisher. So actually I read a lot of this stuff and, and I was kind of looking at it and going, oh, that's great. I can start to tweak this scene and tweak this scene. And, and I can't. I can't do any of it because I've got to wait until uh, I get feedback from the editor because there's no point in doing the tweaks whilst there's a version with an editor who is going to come back with corrections for you anyway. You know, so if you change things and, of course, they come back with corrections, then it you know, kind of defeats the objective of, um, of getting their feedback unless you can be incredibly you know, sort of organised in your own mind and divorce the two different versions in terms of what's there and then version control everything back together afterwards, which is really hard. And I've done that before. It's not nice. Okay, well, I mean, that's actually a good point then. I mean, we've got information flooding out from Frontier. Well, it's going to come out all the way pretty much until, uh, until they release and possibly even you know, through, the, uh, through the gamma as well. At what point do you sort of you know, put your manuscript down and say, it's done? Whatever they tell me now, I don't care about. For me, until the point when you know, I'm, I'm utterly happy with everything and it, and it fits to what I consider to be the gameplay, then I don't put it down. The thing that you noticed with Holstock's work by comparison to some of the other published work associated with the the franchise is that you could really feel like he was playing the game. And the same with Michael A. Stackpole when he was releasing stuff um, related to X-Wing. He really felt like he knew about playing the game. He was describing things that were playing the game. And I, you know, I want that. I want that, you know, I want that hook in, in, in what I'm writing. So I'm not prepared to put it down until such point as that's there. But if they come up, I, I doubt they're going to come up with things very late on that are going to make massive differences to my text. So, you know, it is only little nuances now. You know, it's things like how people move down corridors in spaceships and how uh, magnetic boots, you know, are designed, what, what they look like. So, you know, that's a, a small description alteration. You know, how, what the jumpsuit looks like that's a slight description alteration. What the cockpit actually looks like on a particular type of ship, slight description alteration, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I can't see it being big once we get closer to the, you know, to the deadline. Cool. So you'd say that, you know, the fact that the you know, the jumpsuit being able to uh, do sort of instant repairs and, you know, <laughs> tidy up severed limbs and stuff is just a, a minor alteration. You can't see a, a, a plot within no. that. No, not really. Um, in terms of my story... Um, there are a few things I'd like to feature, you know, um, and I've, I've obviously got always got the caveat that my book said in 3265. So mm. anything that, you know, is, is kind of doesn't feature, I can I can kind of say, you know, as long as Frontier agree with it, we can we can kind of say that stuff was invented after 3265. So, you know, that makes certain things easier to, to kind of play, uh, play around with. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, you know, I've got I've got elements in the story where. I could make use of the devices that have been mentioned in this newsletter. And it won't take me long. You know, it'd take me a day or two just to, just to do the tweaks uh, and get it absolutely right. But at the moment, because of the fact that it's in with the publisher, I kind of can't do those. 
talking about tweaks and making sure you're getting it right, the next section of the newsletter was the the cockpit and just going into a bit of detail as to you know, how they're actually sort of focusing on the cockpit, making it look like you know it's a real space and how it's something that even though you know you've got a sci-fi element, all the materials should be recognisable to sort of modern day. And yeah, spending a little bit of time talking about the holographic displays and stuff that we saw in the Damocles video, which again we'll come on to when we talk about uh, the deconstruction of the Damocles video that was in the, the latest dev diary. But yeah, I mean, it all pretty much makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, considering that they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't initially talking about Oculus Rift, there's now a lot of talk about the part that you know 3D players and Oculus Rifts are going to play even early on when it comes to cockpits and stuff. Is that something that you guys are interested in? I mean, I would say you know it, it has a space concern. When I was you know, because I've got a, I, obviously, you know, it's not not much of a reveal to say that there's a sidewinder in my um, uh, my story, and uh, another point, there's an adder in my story. You know, looking at the size of the cockpit and looking at the shape around the um, the pilot is something that can inform your description and can help you. So, you know, the fact that they visualised it gives me more information to work with. And is that what you had in your head when you were thinking about a Sidewinder cockpit, or is it slightly that, smaller? Or that one there, it is slightly smaller. I think, you know, to to be fair, the the Sidewinder or the Adder cockpit is actually is the one that features the most in terms of knowing the mechanics of the of it. And the Cobra cockpit is also is, is the same. Cobra, Cobra cockpit, I kind of envisaged to be about twice the size of that one. Uh, the Adder cockpit, I, I guess, would be slightly similar, and but slightly elongated. That was that was the way in which I'd kind of looked at it. But um, the interesting thing is, of course, is the fact that you don't have a dashboard across the where the pilot is. Because I don't know about you, but I'd I'd always sort of thought of the dashboard being in front of the pilot, um, and that's the main difference. So essentially, his rudder controls were right in front of him, and then he would have a immediately have a console that he could move his left or right hand straight across to. Whereas looking at the um, uh, the sidewinder image in the newsletter, um, the console is quite some distance away, apart from the one that's uh, that's obviously it's protruding from the uh, from the chair. That one, you know, much smaller console. I was I was thinking of sort of quite a, a sort of a almost a desk console um, across the front. Yeah, sort of the thing that we see in I don't know, say, um, say Star Trek and yeah, you know, the the Star Trek shuttles and things like that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, with theirs. What they do with theirs is is that all the controls are based in the desk console, whereas I was kind of thinking that you'd have you know responsive controls, i.e. controls that you're controlling the ship with, uh, in the center, and then you'd have a slightly sort of to one side, either right or left, you know, front console. Uh, but you know that's obviously not what uh, what we have here. So, yeah. I mean, looking at it, it looks like though. I mean, would you suggest that there was space there? They've left space there for the you know the hologram. Uh, obviously, all the holographic displays and stuff are going to be presented up in front of you. So maybe that's why there's a space yeah. from the from the pilot to the front console. Yeah, you know, possibly. And also with that, those holographic displays, we don't know how interactive the holographic element is. So you know, perhaps that's the way in which they you know they, they sort of deal with it. What you're thinking more my, sort of like Minority Report kind of. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, most of my current sort of um, use of consoles in the in my writing is all about touch. You know, so it's all all touchpad. And everything is all, you know, sort of touchscreen and, and, and everything else. You know, everything is, is sort of derived that way. So, yeah, switching to a, a holographic display is actually is, is fairly different. But, you know, I, I think I will probably stick to my 3265 caveat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pleased, though, that even on the smaller ship, there is clearly space for 
other characters to stand in the cockpit and talk to the pilot. Mm. I think that was one of my concerns about, you know, writing any kind of scenes in, in ships was, you know, is, is the pilot space, is it literally just the pilot crammed into a kind of, you know, almost the, the chair almost machines him into a seat? Because if you think about implications of things like the escape pod, I think I always assumed in the previous games that the escape pod basically just ejected the sealed cockpit. And I was trying to get my head around how the automatic escape pod works when you've got a deck that people can stand on. That said, I prefer to have a deck where other characters can stand there and have conversations in flight. But I'm curious about how the, the sort of quick escape pod works. I'm just quite keen to, to have a, a cockpit area where you could have a conversation, despite the fact that obviously we, we're restricted a little bit by the, um, the rules on gravity and also the rules on, um, uh, on acceleration and, uh, and force and, you know, and everything else with all this siloplast and sort of ideas in, in terms of how force is distributed and, and cushioned. So we are a bit restricted in that regard, but I was very keen to have conversation, dialogue, action and stuff happen in the cockpit, happen midway through things going on because I didn't want scenes where stuff was divided. So you're essentially, you know, all your, all your, all your space stuff was either fighting or on the comms or you were landed and then you had your proper talks. I, you know, I kind of wanted to mix it up a bit. And um, so it's good to see that there is space to do that. Uh, similarly with the escape capsule stuff yeah it's tricky because of course we've with, with some plots you have scenes where escape capsules are used and triggered and so knowing whether it's the cockpit section or whether it's the chair sliding into the floor sort of thunderbird style and clearing off into another you know compartment that's then jettisoned you don't know so um so yeah so be interesting yeah that works for me <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like the Thunderbirds idea. I thought the Thunderbirds <laughs> idea was cool. Okay, and also in the newsletter, there is a quick mention about the the fact that the Alpha is uh, is imminent. Uh, Ashley's just reaffirming the fact that you know the specs that we've been talking about, uh, both on this show and also on the forums, they are the initial specs. Hopefully, they're going to do some optimizations, and for the final game, those specs are going to be a little bit high to what they're expecting to release with the final product. He was mentioning that there are still places available for the alpha test. Uh, unfortunately, by the time you're listening to this podcast, they would have been closed because the cutoff date for that was the the sixth of December. But it's interesting looking at the uh, the running total for Frontier Developments between you know some of this information coming out with this newsletter and the next uh, video. There's been quite a quite a bump in terms of people coming on and actually pledging. John, I think you've been tracking that, haven't you? Well, yeah. I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago, just before the newsletter, that that, that we'd creeped up to two million, and uh, there's quite a fanfare on the forums. But it seemed like a long time coming. But basically, between this newsletter and the video, it looks like you know the pledges have it's gone up by a hundred thousand pounds. And you reckon that that's just people jumping on just to get in for the alpha, do you? Well, I, I, that's speculative, I mean, but, you know, it kind of makes sense. But also, I think maybe the video has done the rounds. I know it's been plugged on Star Citizen forums and, and some other places. So maybe we have seen uh, a lot of other people coming and, and getting involved with the project. Yeah, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Because obviously it's been a year uh, since everybody <laughs> raided their piggy banks and you know, got the game funded in the first place. Now people have had a chance to sort of save up some money. Now you know, they might be feeling a little bit flush, although it's just around the corner from Christmas yet again. Do we think that uh, these are new people from, as you say, the, the Star Citizens forums? Or do you think these are people just sort of, you know, people hate the phrase, but jaunting their, uh, their pledge just so they can get a- uh, alpha 
which previously they couldn't afford. Well, I think, to be honest, most of them are new because you are seeing a lot of new people coming into the forums as well, introducing themselves and saying that they've been watching everything for a while and then, you know, seen that... Um, that the alpha was closing and that uh, the storefront was changing and so on and so forth. So actually, I think it's bringing new uh, new people in. Um, there is talk on other forums. There's been quite a lot of interesting talk on the EgoSoft forum because obviously <laughs> uh, X Rebirth maybe wasn't quite what some people expected it to be. Obviously, other people are really enjoying it, and that's fine. But some people have decided that um, Elite Dangerous might be the game for them. A little aside to the uh, the X Rebirth thing, it has been quite badly reviewed. There's a lot of people very, very obsessed about the quality of that game, which is a shame because I must admit, from the trailer, I thought that looked like it. You know, it might be something that I could you know, invest some time in whilst I was waiting for you know, waiting for Alpha and waiting for Beta. But you know, reading the reviews have really sort of put me off. Yeah, I I, I bought previous versions, really enjoyed them, um, loved the X series. I stayed away from this one, so um, kind of fairly happy that I made that choice but I mean some people are enjoying it and that's you know that's great so but others have decided to come and and back Elite what we'd like and you know and I'm sure everyone shares the sentiment is for more of those people hopefully to be aware of the the current audio and fiction kickstarter and um, drop over to that because that that's obviously uh, a support of you know the work that's gone into it and the work that's gone into everything else so and if people do come to the storefront late and realise they've missed the alpha, then you can just take that money, go over to the uh, Kickstarter at tinyurl.com forward slash fantastic audio and uh, pledge to back that Kickstarter as well. You guys finished? Uh, I thought I thought I was I thought I was really I thought I was really subtle and careful, and then Chris came in Did with you? a shame. Really? <laughs> Do you know what I've, 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 I've done with subtle and careful? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just say pledge, pledge, or the baby gets it. Or or a Michael Jackson picture, you know, with the kids <laughs> over the balcony. <laughs> oh, it makes me shut. <laughs> And final section of the newsletter this week, uh, comms chatter. Ashley refers to the elite meet that happened uh, a few weeks back in Manchester, which was a very successful event. And Ashley mentions, uh, obviously, the Labe Radio Conclave episode that was recorded at Elite Meet and the Barnard Star News episode that was recorded. So, yeah. And I think he also has a has a mention for Escape Velocity, does he, Chris? Yeah, yeah, it does. I was quite surprised to be scrolling down the newsletter and to see my own banner for Escape Velocity. Um, Does he ask permission to use your IP? (laughs) (laughs) No, and I should point out, obviously, the artwork is is entirely theirs to begin with. Uh, But yeah, no, it's really nice. Um, Huge thanks to the guys at uh, Frontier for putting that in the newsletter. And just hope people are enjoying season two. Yeah, I suppose we should also thank uh, Frontier as well, because they uh, ended the newsletter this week with the official fiction news, which is uh, relating to the fantastic audio campaign that you guys are running uh, on Kickstarter at the moment, so hopefully you should see some increase from people from the newsletter coming through. Yeah, and I will just say, I mean, for people that are that, that either are or aren't following the Kickstarter, which I will mention again, if you're enjoying Escape Velocity, I have been asked to work on the audiobooks for the Kickstarter. So if you're enjoying Escape Velocity, um, it is that kind of thing that we're going to be doing with the audiobooks, uh, only with the backing of the Kickstarter. You know, we'll have kind of professional actors, and we'll just be able to put an awful lot more into it than perhaps we've been able to do with Escape Velocity, which is obviously a, a sort of fan project and is made very much on a, on a very, very small budget. Cool, I, was going to th- I thought you were going to say shoestring there. Cliché averted. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do try. I don't want to be accused of being derivative. <laughs> oh, John, we need to we need to cut that audio out and uh, and just keep it for all uh, so we can just drop it into future podcasts. <laughs> Cliche avoided. <laughs> I just love the fact that um, Chris probably went out of his way to avoid saying that, but then you thought you'd go and do it for him anyway. Don't get more derivative or cliche than me. Before we go into the dev diary, just a quick mention of the peak of the week. This is the feature that Frontier Developments have in the private backers forum where they give uh, exclusive pictures of uh, some in-game feature. And the latest couple have been, believe it or not, the Cobra Mark III got its first airing in peak of the week. What did you guys think of the Cobra Mark III? Can I be totally honest and admit that I didn't realise it was a Cobra Mark III? Yeah, you can. I thought, that Sidewinder slimmed down a bit. <laughs> well, this is, the, this is the point. And basically, for those people that haven't seen it, it was a, a rear image of the, what we assume, I'm not sure it was actually confirmed, but we can assume that it's the Cobra Mark III. And it, it does just look like a, a very thin, stretched Sidewinder at the moment, which wasn't really the image I had in my head for the Cobra Mark III. You see, now I disagree. I thought it looked fantastic. I thought it looked very different because it, it, the engines were in a different position to start with. Um, it had two bigger heat exchangers, whatever you want to call them. I, I thought it looked good. I, it, it looked straight away to, like a Cobra to me. Really? Because in my head, you know, obviously the Cobra is sort of, I don't know, the, the, the sort of the middle way ship. It's, you know, it's, it's decent at combat. It's decent with cargo. And that ship to me just didn't look like it had much cargo space in it whatsoever. Well, again, you know, it's kind of hard to judge scale in that kind of shot. You know, I mean, if there'd been a sidewinder next to it, then maybe it might have been a bit easier. But I guess, you know, I'll, I'll concede that um, a lot of these shots, because they're taken from the back of the ship, because that's where all the interesting stuff's happening, um, you know, it's kind of hard to pick out features, I guess. I loved it. Oh, I loved it totally. <laughs> I loved it totally. I just, I completely missed the point. I think it looks sexy as, I think the um, the the sort of, the change of shape is really nice gives it a lovely lovely sleek line and you know it's kind of like those kind of car modifications that occasionally cars have to to lower the ride or whatever else um you know <laughs> you thinking I, this is the the Cobra mark three on sports suspension yeah something like that um or you know done fast and loud or something like that you know the I, cobra rs turbo <laughs> but it, i i thought it looked awesome i think i think it was the right choice the i think the old design was starting to, you know, because we'd seen some of the test shots, you know, the, the concept stop shots beforehand, which were the you know, sort of filled version of the of the older um, line graphic and then sort of smoothed a little bit. Um, this thinner design gives it a real, it, it looks a little bit more vicious. I think that's really nice because I think the older one was, was looking a bit blocky, to be honest. The utilitarian nature of the Sidewinder gives the Sidewinder a real sort of identity, and I, I really felt that the two looked very different. So, totally disagree with Chris. Outside fight. <laughs> you see, now I disagreed in a way that didn't involve physical violence. <laughs> which, which, which has to be the way to disagree with people, you know, really. <laughs> Really? There's a time and a place. I, I thought this game was P- PvP, you know, I thought it was a whole thread today, you know, where someone was threatening physical violence on everybody. There was an interesting point, though, which was, I know this isn't Community Corner, but while we're discussing the Cobra, there's a very valid point, I think, made on the um, the, the forums that someone was saying, well, you know, why isn't the, the Cobra Mark III the default ship? Because it's the iconic elite ship. And, of course, the Cobra is actually quite high-powered, 
Mm-hmm. And it's actually, you know, it's not a good starting out point for the beginning of a game, assuming that the game you are you are playing is about, you know, starting off with a very basic ship and gradually working your way up to a kind of slightly more more powerful beast. The Cobra Mark III is by no means the, the you know the, the the weediest of ships in the Elite Universe. No, absolutely, I completely agree with you, Chris. And correct me if I'm wrong, but was there not an option? when you were doing the Kickstarter rewards to actually sort of buy yourself into a Cobra Mark III as a starting ship. Yeah, because we've all got it. I think we all do start in a Cobra Mark the III. Founders, yeah, the founders uh, rating, which we've all got, uh, gives us 4,000 credits in a Cobra Mark III. Yeah, I thought so. So, yeah, <laughs> which is the max starting option you but, can have. But, I mean, in, in a way, Chris is right, because in Frontier, you didn't have a choice to start in a Cobra. It was it was the Eagle, wasn't it? Yeah, and the yeah. Saker, the Saker for, the, yeah. for Frontier Thurston. So I can see what they mean. So, in a way, I mean, technically, you know, us backers have got a significant boost starting in a Cobra compared to previous games, I guess. And actually, it's not it's not that high a backing state because it's only going back and having a look at it. It's only the thirty seven quid Is pledge. It? So there's actually going to be an awful lot of players going into the game. I mean, we've talked previously about whether backers will have an advantage in the game because they've you know started it that much sooner. But this is a very tangible, <laughs> a very well, tangible advantage that backers are going to have. But it's slower, you know. I mean, they've they've already you know indicated with some of the you know the the original playtesting footage just how much faster some of the other ships are. Mm. The Cobra's a lot slower. I mean, it's you know it'll take a bit more more of a punch. I mean, we'll we'll only find out when we get to Alpha. But I you know my assumption is it'll take a lot. But it's not going to have the same turning arc that a Sidewinder's got, and it's not going to have the same turning arc that some of the other ships have got. Now that they've had hard hard points introduced. You may find that, for instance, if you want to start life as a trader and you're going to be trading in a in a safer core system, you know you might trade in your Cobra for another ship, which is might be of the same size but has less hard points but more cargo space. Just a thought there. I've kind of made this this comment before when talking about things like Pokemon, but I, I'd almost like within Elite Dangerous it actually not to be a case of there being weaker ships and stronger ships. It would almost be really nice if there was a role for every ship in the universe in the sense that you pick the right tool for the job it would be it would be nice if there was balance i think between the different vehicles yeah i think there probably will be though because i mean frontier developments are talking that you should always be able to escape from a situation even if you're faced with a real sort of yeah a mismatch of um you know of vessels so your sidewinder is still going to be great for you know courier missions or you know quick passenger runs or things like that that's going to be its role whereas the cobra mark three it's going to be a good, a decent fighter, and also a decent trader at the same time. So that's its role. I think they are hoping that each ship is going to have its own particular sort of niche. Yeah, and I don't think you can, you know, with the fact we've got passenger liners in this, yeah. um, you know, I, I think the, you know, the intention very much is to go for role-based um, ships. But you know, at the same time, you, you do want to be able to go to the ship trade yard, look at the list, and kind of mull over your choices, don't you? You do want occasionally to have well do i take that one or take that one rather than just go there thinking i'm going to go and do this i'm going to buy that you know yeah and also i suppose if you're thinking that you know in this game we can actually own multiple ships as well do you really want it to be the case where you think oh i've got this mission so let me just go and grab my sidewinder or i've got this mission let me go and grab my passenger carrier and stuff like that to me that doesn't seem like an exciting game 
as soon as you get to multiple ownership, you know, it makes your life a lot easier. So there might be a little less uh, drama involved. But just going with what Alan said, yeah, I would like to see it that when you when you do go and upgrade your ship, it's not just like in Frontier where the upgrade path is obvious. You'd buy mm. the next ship that you could afford because it had more cargo space. Mm. You know, you, it would be interesting to see ships that had the same amount of space in them, but one of them was more geared towards combat, so that space would be hard points and things like that, whereas the other one would just be all about, you know, cargo for trading. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, redistribution and, and sort of also getting the idea that the player is kind of looking at the ship and going, this is this is the way I play, this is the way I fly, this is the way I do stuff, so is this going to be the right thing for me? You know, because then it doesn't just become 25 ships, does it? It becomes 250 ships in the fact that, you know, players customise them in different ways and then hopefully 25,000 ships and so on and so forth. I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, we're all hoping that they'll add playable ships in downloadable content later on as well. So an expansion pack with another 10 would be awesome, you know, because 25, 25 for an entire quadrant of, or for an entire galaxy, 25 ships for everybody. Um, you know, I know, I know there's a few Imperial and Federation ships that aren't playable, but um, I, I'd like to see the the variances populated a lot more if possible yeah i'd agree with that but yeah i'm sure we will see future expansions include more ships because as you say there's 25 is just too small a number for an entire an, an entire galaxy but one of the things that put me off eve online was um the need that you have to you know when you're talking about tweaking and modifying your ships and things like that there was actually an offline uh, or a separate sort of piece of software, I can't remember what it was actually called, that allowed you to sort of tweak and drag all your weapons and drag all of your hard points and your various different you know, modules uh, into it so you could see whether or not you had the right sort of energy capacitance in the ship and you know, what effect it has on your shields. And I'm hoping that all the mods and stuff they do in Elite Dangerous are a lot more straightforward because you basically you, you couldn't fly your ship without going into you know, this sort of ship management tool that didn't come with the game. It was separate to the game and spending a good sort of hour trying to you know, maximize your ship. See, um, I, I always used to love that kind of stuff. I oh, know. That's just, you know, <laughs> when they're saying that, you know, some of the worst things about EVE Online is the, you know, death by spreadsheet, you know, that's the element to me that I just I just couldn't stand, and I'm hoping that Elite Dangerous is a lot more sort of a lot more obvious, a lot more in your face. If that I means take, slightly less modifications, then I can live with that. I take it you didn't play things like Space Empire then. No, I didn't. Where you know, sort of a 4x game where basically you're sitting there and designing all these these different types of ship based on different hulls and moving all the interfaces around to try and get the most optimized. Uh, you know, layout and everything else. Yeah, no, I, I, I quite liked all that. Um, yeah, that still doesn't sound like an exciting thing <laughs> to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, as I say, I mean, you know, we, we ultimately we want more ships, you know, because I think people will like it. What I was going to suggest is, uh, or what I was going to say is, I was going to mention our our frequent frontier listener, Mike Evans. There was a very interesting thread some time ago, prior to X Rebirth coming out, when a couple of the the original sort of screenshot graphics videos were were released the first time you saw you know people flying the ship and one of the things he said at the time was when people complained about the fact that oh there's only one ship in the previous games we've been able to buy other ships and he he came back with well actually it would be pretty cool to have a, a space game where you've only got one ship because think of all the work we could do to kit out that cockpit to make it utterly utterly amazing and an incredibly immersive experience yeah okay mike now um 
I wonder if you've played X Rebirth now and are interested in how they managed to do that. Yeah, they did manage. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the long and the short of it. They just didn't. I, I didn't want to be horrible. <laughs> I thought I'd just set it up. <laughs> oh dear okay and um another pick of the week the the latest pick of the week it's a bit of a conundrum actually it uh it looks like i don't know like a floating garbage can i'm assuming it's a, a probe of some description uh, i know john's probably sniggering away at the the word probe there but i don't think you're doing it justice by saying it looks like a floating garbage can it looks a lot better than that well, yeah, it does, but in times of trying to sort of picture it in your head, it does just, it, it's a pod, you know, it's a, it's a pod in space, but there's no explanation as to what that, what that is actually going to be in-game. Are we assuming it's going to be you know, some sort of exploration pod for, for mapping? I mean, what do you reckon? Some people on the forums have speculated because you've got that kind of um, scaffolding, you know, you would only have that kind of a structure on something that was large. I'm not too sure about that, you know, because so, that puts it in the kind of size of like a, I don't know, like a small space station or something like that. But but then again, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking of this little, thin, pointy-out bits, which, if it was a space station, you wouldn't want to do that because they're kind of quite vulnerable. So it does make me think it's small. Am I overthinking this? I don't know. The words RF-78 are on it. Well, I googled that, and the only thing I could come up with was a fishing float. So... <laughs> It's all about fishing in the Elite Dangerous Universe. We've, we've, we've tried to be clear about this. Yeah, so I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's something that's just going to bob around in space. Um, hence why I said on my, my guess was that it was like a decoy. It was something that you could fire out your ship and it would appear as another ship on other people's scanners. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think you're right there because the the whole discussion in relation to um, heat sinks and everything else was related to heat trace and um, and trace on sensors, wasn't it? So, yeah, I'm not sure decoys is going to work that way. Well, it might just spit out a load of heat. Yeah, it could be, but you know, I, I think it's more likely to be some sort of um, map buoy or or something like that. I think it's it's more likely that. Well, that well someone said it was like a hyper like a hyperspace jump you know probe or something like that yeah i think that's more likely i mean you know if you hyperspace into a system and then you're able to fire out a a a few of these devices and they can effectively transmit information back to you you're creating a map of that system at that point in time so you could perhaps find some locations uh, a little bit quicker than having to search the entire system so yeah I, i i'm thinking that kind of stuff Let's go crashing on to the bit that I think is probably the most exciting piece of news that we've had out in the last couple of weeks, and that is of the Dev Diary number eight, the deconstruction of the Damocles video by Chris Gregory. As I say, I think this is probably some of the most interesting visual imagery that we've had coming out of the game pretty much since the Damocles video, actually. Alan, you mentioned before about the the opening sequence with the the world and the background surrounded by by asteroids. What other things came out of the video, this deconstruction for you, that... uh, that got you really excited? Well, layering to start with. Um, I've recently been been working on some of the effects for you know some of the stuff I want to produce later on, and just seeing all the detail in in terms of layering that they've been working on and how they're incorporating. You know, the the biggest thing for me, they're incorporating all of that into the engine. You know, that's that's awesome because you can you can do all these things in post, and it takes a you know a certain amount of time for it then to render out, and then you've got a nice 
sort of piece of video that's got all this layer, you know, sort of stuff uh, over the top and, you know, thought about frosting on the glass and thought about this. But the fact that they're incorporating that into the engine, so essentially it will look to try and do it on the fly, that's incredible. I think that was probably one of the nicest bits of the video where you actually saw that the light cast across the cockpits and you know, highlight all the scratches and all the marks and all the frosts and stuff that's actually on the, you know, on the glass or the plexiglass or whatever it's going to be, you know, depending on if you've just got a, a lens flare from the sun or if you've got engine wash from uh, a big capital ship, you know, how that looks and how that's sort of dynamically cast across the, you know, the cockpit I thought was amazing. Yeah, it, it requires... Real, you know, visual effects and that sort of level requires a real attention to detail that you have to work at a level that people may not appreciate, you know, in because they won't be looking at it at the level that you're working at it at. And so, uh, when it's then run and put through, you kind of don't see it. And I think we saw that with mm. the, you know, the capital ship video in the first place, and then seeing this video and looking between the two and going, oh my gosh. You know just how much detail has been, you know, has gone into the the layering and and preparation of footage in that regard. I was I was you know a little skeptical, if you recall, with uh, the capital ship video in the first place, because I was you know a couple of things I was kind of thinking, hmm, maybe maybe this, maybe this. But you know, you now start to see just how much they sort of thought and gone into you know to some of the elements, and and it really is incredible. So you know, I was very impressed with this particular video. How much of this is uh, just sort of modern hardware? Because I was looking at that video and thinking, Christ, am I going to need a supercomputer to be able to get all of these you know, highlighted uh, visual effects on screen? Or you know, is this something that just modern PCs are you know, perfectly capable of doing? I think it's a combination of, of obviously modern hardware. Because obviously when we see these videos, they're not running on you know Michael's lower end machine. They probably are on a higher end machine, uh, but not just that. I think there's the whole there's a whole aesthetic to Elite which they've carried through the whole project with all of the designs, um, with the look of the cockpits. It looks very new. It looks like nothing I've seen before, and so I think that's why it, it, it really kind of ticks all the boxes and, and looks impressive. Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I think as well. I guess the thing you, you kind of have to think here, Foz, is that the the stuff I work with is is sort of fairly general purpose. Some of the you know the software and the things that I use in post production are designed to be able to do lots of different things for lots of different projects and lots of different stuff. What you have here is a bespoke engine designed. Um, you know, okay, so Co- the Cobra engine is going to be used for other games, but specifically in this regard, it's being tailored directly to this game so of course all the processes that you want it to do you can write directly in and you don't have to worry about all the other things that you might want it to do you just worry about the ones you do want it to do um, and that can you know be replicated from uh, things that other people think are cool so you look at you know the look of something and you go yeah what about that yeah what about that so yeah i i, I don't think it's going to be as taxing as we as we think and of course you know with the fact that they're requiring uh, multi-core systems with with hyper-threading and everything else. Some of that stuff is working on one processor, some's working on another. You know, that, that kind of shares the load, doesn't it? It does, but I mean, I mean, that's why I'm saying it, because up until now, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in my head, I always had this sort of opinion that uh, it seemed that even though we had all these multiple core processes that modern games just didn't use them all or they weren't being programmed to, to utilize all the cores at the same time i mean has this development caught up where people are now doing that well i, I don't know about development in general but i think obviously frontier by the looks of it 
Um, I mean, this started off as a Skunk Works project. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff in here which bucks the trend of the industry. You know, I mean, a lot of the stuff that, you know, game companies use now is a lot of off-the-shelf stuff. You know, they share a lot of game engines. This is a custom game engine, as, as Alan has basically said. But I, I, I would suspect there's going to be a lot of custom code that's been put in there by Frontier, which probably just doesn't exist anywhere else. And so you'll you'll find that with graphics cards, you know, they're very specialized and geared towards a certain type of processing, which is polygons and, and, and textures. Uh, and now the, these modern graphics cards have shaders and things like that. You may find that they're doing a lot of other stuff, which maybe is done on the CPU and then gets the results get sh- shuttled off into the graphics card. Um, the thing that springs to mind is like... Um, the procedurally generated, what I'd call a skybox in Elite Dangerous, uh, when you see a star in space, that's because it's been generated. It's not just some texture that someone's put together. That's been created dynamically to show where you are in the, in the galaxy and all the stars around you. Now, that kind of processing is probably going to be done on the CPU. Um, and then it's built and sent as a texture to the graphics card. So I think you know that may be one of the reasons why we're seeing such a high, uh, higher requirement on on the uh, processor rather than just the usual thing on the GPU. Sorry, mate. Just to, to back up a bit uh, for those people that don't know, what exactly is a Skunk's work project? Oh, well, this goes back to I think it's like a uh, um, I think it was was it Lockheed. Skunk Works was basically a code word for developing stuff, which was not necessarily secret, but you just chuck money and resources at it, um, hoping that you know something fruitful would come to, from it. Um, you know, people were usually given a lot. You know, they were allowed to be a lot more creative in their approach to things, and I think that's you know kind of what Elite Dangerous was. I think they 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 used the word Skunk Works themselves. During uh, I think it was a Kickstarter. I think Michael Brooks on the forums, I'm sorry, on the Kickstarter uh, comments said, "Oh, you know, it was a Skunk Works um, project." Hence, why they had all this uh, multiplayer code ready, um, and they were just looking for funding to complete the game rather than write the whole game. I think one of the other things that's been a trend um, in games in recent years has been a shift towards actually processing the the 3D image after it's completed on the GPU. Just been a, a bit of a subtle shift, and I wonder if it's down to the fact that obviously years ago there were lots of pixels on the screen, and it was you know unthinkable to think about having to, to modify those. Whereas actually generating a 3D scene became quite straightforward with with hardware backup. But in recent years, there's been a few games that have been talking about applying film techniques to the processed image. So once the game has kind of generated that 3D view, actually taking you know, what, what's been done in 3D and actually applying after effects to it. I mean, odd things like, um, uh, I can't think what it's called, that thing where you um, darken the corners of the picture. It's a film technique. I can't remember what it's called for now. Um, but odd things like that. I mean, things like um, the HDR lighting stuff, mm. that's all done post, you know, once the scene is on the screen, the, the HDR lighting is then applied to it in 2D. You know, it's not a 3D effect. So it'd be interesting to know, actually, from, from some of that elite stuff and with the different layers, how much of that is actually a 2D process and how much of it is part of the 3D modelling. What else came out of the video that uh, that interested you guys? I mean, Well, for me, 
I tell you what, it, it, the big thing on 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 the, the reveal for me, which was kind of related to the, all that dynamic lighting, because it was caused by the back end of an anaconda. So it was nice. It was just nice to see an anaconda again. Oh, okay. So not just the not specifically just the back end of an anaconda that got you excited. It's the anaconda in total. Well, I guess yeah. And of course, they they then showed the concept art for the the bridge or deck or whatever you want to call it of the anaconda, which looked very Star Trek. I loved it. I also liked, you know, the the demo, the control method. I mean, seeing the cockpit moving, the way in which the cockpit yeah. moves uh, with the view. Um, they had been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks just how great this was. And, of course, you kind of can't. You know, I'm not very good at visualizing. You know, when when people give me an idea of how something's going to be, uh, I, I really can't pick it up. And then I see it. You know, and I mean that just did look awesome. Just the way in which that shakes around and independent of the of the view outside, or rather linked to the view outside. You know, the 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 sort of hooking movement that that has is fantastic. Really, and if really I remember cool. rightly, it was it was Ashley Barley when we had him on as guest. He was the one. I I, I am sure it was him who said, oh, I've, "We've been looking at this." Uh, you know this cockpit that's moving around and it looks awesome, and that was way back a long time ago. So they've probably refined it a hell of a lot since then. Well, they yeah. were talking about the fact that it fits with um, with 3D, weren't they? You know, they were saying that you know the, uh, some of the the graphic discussion afterwards was about how it's optimized for for proper 3D as well. Which, wow, you know that that could be stunning to you know, to, to, to play so that the console effectively pops out towards you, which is awesome. Well, this is interesting. I mean, that's one of the things they did say. So they said how exciting it was looking at these things running on a, you know, a 3D TV and the Oculus Rift. Now, is it just me or is that the first we've heard of it running on a 3D TV? And what are the implications for that within you know, the PC market? I mean, I, I haven't heard of uh, 3D monitors or, or glasses to, uh, to run that Apart from NVIDIA a while ago had a, a 3D graphics card. Well, I think that um, everyone's been so hung up with um, the Oculus Rift that people actually forgot that maybe there was existing 3D technologies already out there, which as long as your graphics card can support it, can usually just render most games in 3D anyway. And so obviously they've just highlighted the fact that it does work in 3D. Um, and I think special attention needs to be drawn to the cockpit because I guess if they just tried to do what they'd done in previous games, which was try and make the cockpit quite minimal, um, almost flat, um, or just like a simple HUD, you'd been missing a trick because having that full cockpit rendered in front of you is going to give you a real sense of depth and help you in things like judging distances and understanding the scale of things outside um, a lot more than what you'd have had if, if you hadn't had it. Yeah, agree. Another thing the video showed, <laughs> which is nice just before Christmas, is a little bit of the uh, the control method that they're using in testing, and that of the uh, the hot ass controller. Um, is just wondering if any of you guys are adding that to uh, to your Christmas list uh, this late stage, because it did seem to work very very well in the game in terms of just you know tilting your you know your wrist and the joystick left and right just to sort of change your 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 view angle through the cockpit and look out to the right and look out to the left. I thought that worked really, really well on the testing footage that we saw. Yeah, no, I really liked that. Um, I was very tempted. I uh, I didn't, you know, with the fact that my birthday is just around the corner, it's probably already gone by the time we uh, we get this out. I didn't buy 
or uh, or put um, the controller on my Christmas list. I kind of want to see it play first. I've got a, mm. a nice old joystick that I really like. I want to see it play first, and then maybe we'll look at it, you know, sort of in the year and what have you. I got a joystick with a hat anyway. I'll try it with that first and, and see how it goes. It should be fine. But yeah, the hot ass looked good. But I don't have like money just to throw around for no reason. I've just had to buy a new graphics card. So um, I'll wait. Interesting talk about the radar and how faithful they're, they're keeping to the original Elite radar. And they say you know, how much that works now that the, you know, the 3D aspect has actually caught up with it. Are you guys uh, happy to see the... Uh, the old trusty radar or would you have preferred to uh, see something a little bit more up to date maybe well no i think they they hit the nail on the head that um it does suit the holographic display um it, it was ahead of its time and it's it, it doesn't look out of place because you just couldn't imagine anything else can you i mean it was so good at what it did that even if you tried to have a, a proper 3d display it would be confusing so it's almost better than what you might think would be the optimal. So yeah, it's it's, it's I'm glad they're including it. I was going to say absolutely. I utterly love that radar. It's a lovely sort of little clue into old users, old fans. Because obviously the the flight mechanics and the you know the system is is slightly different to the way in which you know we played before. But it's nice to have something right, yeah, familiar right in front of you, so you can kind of see the evolution of uh, of the system. So I think it's really good. And would you say, I mean, obviously you say it's a, it's a nod to those elite veterans that you know, have used it in the past. Would you say it was an intuitive system? Do you think someone new to the elite franchise is going to be able to pick it up and, and quickly follow that radar scheme? Yeah, pretty quickly, I think so. I, I found it really intuitive on Frontier. I didn't have to read a manual to find out how it worked. I just found out how it worked just by moving around in my ship. Uh, you know, you you leave a space station and you've got a golf stick on your screen. You move around, and I think within seconds you realise how it works. It's that intuitive. Okay, so on to the DDF, and the big topic for the DDF this week is the return of vouchers. So vouchers part two. We we discussed. Well, actually, we discussed this topic at some length last uh, episode, even though we had very little information on it. Uh, just a quick reprisal on what vouchers are. Vouchers are receipts handed over to contacts for rewards. Generally speaking, commanders will know at least one contact they can hand a voucher over to, though there may be sometimes hidden alternative contacts that you can hand these to. There are different types of vouchers pertaining to activities, in other words, bounties, exploration, discoveries, and political discoveries. Vouchers may have one or more expiry conditions. Handing in a voucher can do more than give a commander a reward. It can also feed into a mission event, uh, or it can also affect reputations and ratings. And finally, each voucher can also be explicit proof of something. So being in possession of a voucher may also feed into missions and event generations. So last week we talked about, you know, in general what vouchers were going to be, and they were going to be the, the method which Frontier used to hand over pieces of data and information. The topic for this week is whether or not it's going to be a good idea, a bad idea, or how we're going to get it to work to get vouchers for external money so real world trading and whether or not it's a good idea to actually be able to pay your way through elite dangerous or whether or not paying for vouchers should just be limited to something like cosmetic effects so you know changing the hue of your lasers or maybe putting different tags on your ship okay now i know you guys were quite passionate about this list uh, last week so uh john tell us what you think of the idea well, I, I mean, I've been on the forums a lot um, during this discussion, obviously, not just last week, but I think ever since the beginning of the podcast, you know, whenever this kind of thing's popped up, I'm a bit more relaxed 
Uh, I try not to get too uptight about stuff. So I'm willing to wait for more information before I decide categorically whether in-game payments for gear, as as it's easier to, to say, is, is a good or a bad thing. Um, from what I've seen, you know, you've got two camps. You know, you've got, you've got people that think that uh, people been able to buy ships or equipment is just outright bad because it gives an advantage. I don't know anybody who just flat out says that, yes, it's an excellent thing, but th- there is a kind of a, a large... Um, population of people that aren't happy with that idea. Now, for me, I think it's purely like a value thing. I don't think there's any kind of rational reason for it. You either think it's fair or it's not, or you're you're more of a pragmatic person, which is how I see myself. I I just see it as something that, that can happen and that can be accepted if it's done correctly. But the feeling on the forums is that I think that People don't want to see people being able to go out and buy big guns with money because that sucks for them, I guess. But then again, um, it's been also been very interesting to see that there's been a lot of people that are against uh, what seemed to have been what some people hoped was going to be uh, a kind of meeting in the middle, which was vanity items, which I think is far more contentious because I, I find it has a potential um, to be far more immersion-breaking um, when, when you see people... I mean, orange sidewinders are fine, but <laughs> obviously, pink, oh, they're fine. But like a pink one, that's really going to break immersion. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Um, I mean, that's, that's just crazy talk. That's that's just getting silly now. You know? <laughs> or if you if you zoom in from a distance and you see someone's got some fluffy dice or something like that, you know, it, it just makes you know just ruins the game for you. Um, but no, uh, seriously though, I mean, you know, for me, uh, it was kind of a thing about Frontier was that when you saw a laser, it could instill fear in in you because the colour of it would tell you how powerful the laser was or whether it was like a plasma accelerator. Now, for instance, if you gave players the options to customise the colour of their laser, um, all of a sudden you're losing a piece of information or you're making it something that you have to look on your dashboard for. You know, it's not instantly visible. And I mean, people might get stupid. You know, you might have a leopard print bloody panther clipper or something stupid. People have seemed to have adopted vanity items as a kind of, yeah, we'll do this, because they're too scared of, you know, the other option, which may be less immersion-breaking, because it could be handled outside of the game, potentially. Yeah, but I mean, Sandro said, when talking about vanity items, as far as a designer or a developer is concerned, you know, it, it's vanity items are nice because they don't do anything that's going to inherently unbalance the game. Uh, yet still allow players to you know to express themselves. So it's a it's a difficult they, one to sort of weigh up. But they do, Foz. They actually do. And this is where this is a, a misnomer uh, from a design point of view. Um, they don't do anything to unbalance the game mechanics. They do do things to unbalance the game because what they do is they unbalance the immersion level, and that is the the difference. You can, if if vanity items, to my mind. Um, the only way in which vanity items can safely be implemented completely is if you brought them in in such a way as that you saw what you had and actually nobody else saw what you had in that regard. So, um, Which, of course, would defeat the object of half of those vanity items because the people who want their ships to glow in strange colours and, and you know um, puff out magic smoke would want other people to see that they had said special things whereas the people who were kind of trying to keep to a gritty 
you know, sort of space game might not want to see that. It's a tricky one here. I, I kind of think we've we've got into a bit of nitty gritty that we, we perhaps is is difficult, you know, because you can. I think with this issue, you can get into all sorts of nitty gritty examples and find yourself speculating on all sorts of different things that may or may not be the case. And I do think the way in which this has been handled and the way in which it's been announced, um, there's not really, I think the discussion has to be led a lot more because I think at the moment the problem is is that people are just going off on all sorts of different speculations. And, you know, we've, we've had some of that before with, um, with threads in uh, the DDF and they do end up in these, these very sort of camped uh, trenches. Uh, as far as I'm concerned... I mean, my views are fairly stated in that I don't really want any form of um, this kind of subscription or or, um, or purchase system uh, involved in uh, in what I consider to be you know a game that I would buy. But if it is part of the economic model that is needed to maintain the level of game that we want to actually have, and that is clearly stated, then I'm sure we can find some means by which that is is dealt with you know i i think there is a way in which this can work transparently if it is clear from frontier that frontier need a revenue stream to maintain a game that we want to play then at that stage if they indicate very clearly how much of that revenue and what that revenue stream needs to be and then the players can kind of look at that and go okay well you know what are the options in terms of delivering this and then it's very clearly stated in terms of the the mechanics of those options i.e well you could have these things or you can have these things not just general not vanity items or guns no these things these things these things what do you think you know and was put very clearly i think actually then people might start to see how that would work or wouldn't work but when what you're saying there is that that you know the fans will take on board the fact that there needs to be a revenue and the game needs to stay afloat. If that's the case, why wouldn't you go down the subscription line of things and do, I don't know, maybe a minimal fee like four ninety nine a month to you know, to be part of the Frontier universe? I think, well, I think the problem with that is that they've they kind of categorically ruled it out themselves when they said during the Kickstarter they wouldn't do it. I mean, there's plenty of people, I know not everybody, but there has been plenty of people saying that they would be willing to do it. Mm. Because if it would safeguard their game from all of their concerns, you know what would be what would a couple of quid a month cost? You know uh, if you were playing the game, if you stopped playing the game in a year's time, you wouldn't have to pay it anymore. You know it's it's almost the fairest way of doing it. Or you could put it the other way around. Actually, why don't you put it this way around? If you put it in when you were playing in your loading screen, if there was a uh, like a totalizer, like a good old fashioned blue Peter totalizer the frontier had to get to every month to maintain the way in which the game is. And it was just <laughs> in the corner. And they basically said, this is where we are. This is where we have to be. And you just had that in the corner. And it was, it was blatantly given to you as to, you know, this is where we are. This is where we have to be. If we don't get there, then this month's a loss. And we can only continue this, am- this amount of months before we start, you know, having to pull features. So you knew blatantly upfront everything else, what needed to go in there. And there was no necessarily, uh, there wasn't a, it needs to be £5 a month for everyone. There was a, you know, this is how much it is. So if you love the game, you contribute. See what, see what happens with that. See, that's bizarrely honest. And the thing that's strange about that is it would work with almost no community other than the elite community. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, there's no <laughs> way. 
I think with the um, subscription thing, though, I think they've kind of maybe shot their bolts a little bit with the with even having the Kickstarter because I think people have maybe felt that they've backed a certain thing, and then if the terms of that thing were to change, I think people would be quite unhappy because there will be people who aren't happy with the subscription model for a game that have backed it, and I think it's. I mean, there was another thread on the. Um, forums about how that there was some game that was a kickstarter which they've just announced the mobile version is going to be free so there's all these people that have backed it as a pc game that have kind of paid for it and now all these you know pad users are going to be effectively benefiting from the kickstarters and obviously you know and perhaps that's caused a, a you know a certain amount of tension but i think i think the problem with something like this is it's there's people that have backed it and there's people that are waiting for a certain kind of game. And I think that looking at subscriptions and looking at other people suddenly being able to purchase in-game commodities and abilities and ships and all that sort of thing, it's kind of breaking a little bit, maybe the game that people were hoping they were going to see. And I think that's where, you know, a thread like this becomes so emotive. I mean, it's what, on to like 70 pages now? Or yeah. something it's just crazy just going back to what you said about the kickstarter you know it, it if it might be a lot better if everybody had come to kickstarter with the same philosophy but i think uh, a lot of people came to, to the, the the frontier uh, sorry the elite dangerous kickstarter not knowing exactly what it was about and they just said yeah here's my money and threw it at them and so that's why we have some varying different reactions now on that thread. Some people came along and they understand what Kickstarter means. It means, you know, that you might get something delivered, um, but it might not be what you want. But, you know, that was the risk you took. Uh, but then again, there's people on the thread which have said, well, I've given you, you know, hundreds of pounds. Why should I be expected to, you know, they think oh, Frontier owe them. And so you, there's, a, there's a big disparity between people's expectations now. I mean, would you disagree with that, though? As someone that's put you know, quite a bit of money into, uh, into the development of the game, you can kind of, especially when you think that there's people out there that paid for you know, getting all their future expansions incorporate, uh, included in their, you know, in their pledge reward, you know, to have all future expansions included in what you've given over already and yet still being asked to you know, fund the game on a continuing basis. Do you not think well, they have a right to be? Uh, you know, well, I look at it that I look at it that you know they said that they were going to deliver the game. You know they gave estimated delivery times for a start. You know, so you know the main thing was they needed to deliver a game. So as long as they do that, they've met that first criteria. Then they've said I'm going to get to the updates, which I look upon as like downloadable content. You know, significant additions to it. So as long as I get them, I'm happy. But when they say to me, when they say that we've got this ongoing server cost, which is a realistic thing, it's not cheap running a data center which needs to have a high uptime to meet users' requirements. Um, they say, well, we need to be able to fund that. I don't think that's unrealistic, and I don't know, you know, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but you know, I think there may be a combination of you know um, entitlement and a bit of naivety, mm. you know, that. Just because you've thrown a couple of hundred pounds to make sure that the game happens, it doesn't mean that, therefore, if the game happens, that they owe you after that, because that's not the case. There's another view here, and there's another sort of point, and, and, you know, and I've made it fairly plain privately to you guys in that I don't play subscription games. You know, that, that's fundamental, because in terms of my time, I find it very difficult to justify time to play any games 
because of the fact that ultimately the things that I achieve within a game are only things that I am actually going to achieve in that game. So my mentality on that is that, you know, I could be writing more books, I could be making more music, and those things are tangible things I can achieve that are not part of a game. So I struggle with, you know, with gameplay in terms of that, you know, I got to a certain age and it's not, it's not about, you know, it's not about maturity or anything else. It isn't, it isn't that. It's just the fact that I got to a certain age and decided in my life that um, I wanted to achieve things that I could make use of in other environments. And games kind of didn't, you know, playing games didn't necessarily fit in with that, uh, that choice. So the problem with adding subscription is that immediately I then feel like if I am paying it, that I have got to justify the amount of time that I am spending playing this game to justify the, you know, the, the amount of money I'm paying. Um, similar to a gym membership. You know, if you thought about a gym membership, you kind of think you have to go, the obligation that you have to go because you're paying for it. You know? So um, that to me is, is a, um, it's a guilt trip I don't want to have with myself. And so that's why I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't play a game that I was asked to subscribe for. That said, I can see the, you know, the economics that John's talking about and I'm kind of looking at it and thinking, yeah, you know, actually I understand that model. And if, you know, if that's a requirement for Frontier to continue to play, you know, to keep the game that I always wanted to come back, come back, then absolutely I'm, I'm, I'm part of the idea of supporting that. But I'm not after the idea of supporting that for permission to play, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. I actually thought that... Um, a real estate idea was quite nice, you know, because I don't think that, you know, it kind of says nice things in that, you know, people end up with, I don't know, a house on such and such and, a, you know, or a, um, a thing here and a thing there. I thought that's actually quite a nice idea. Um, you know, rent effectively for locations and stuff where you can, you know, land your ships, you know, is a nice idea. There's, there's lots of actual nice ideas that, you know, give you things and, and stuff and, and don't necessarily detract from gameplay. You know, I think there's there's plenty of, of ways it can go. Unfortunately, you you know, with the, all the expectations of everybody, you're going to piss off someone. Yeah, quite. Just going back to a couple of points that you made there, Alan, the, the whole sort of guilt trip and the whole obligation to, you know, to play it as soon as you're paying for it. At what price point in your head does that uh, stop being an issue? I mean, is it like a, a pint of beer, two pints of beer? I mean, at what point do you think, okay, well, it's it's two ninety nine or it's it's five pounds? I I'm not going to feel obliged to uh, to keep paying into it. It it, it doesn't. Um, there isn't a price point. It is the issue of how it is put forward, which is why I said originally, you know, this idea of for me, the idea of we need to get this amount of money this month. And it is just to keep the game that you love going. Will you yeah, contribute? Okay. You know, well, for the, me, that that psychologically doesn't doesn't push my buttons. Um, if you say to me, "I've got to pay a penny a month," it pushes my buttons because you know you, I, I kind of even though it's a penny, I kind of feel like that means I've got to play. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter um, okay, as far well, as I'm concerned. If if there is a subscription and it is an enforced subscription, then it, it, it determines the fact that I'm, I'm obligated to spend time. Okay, well, two things on that then. The other one that you're talking about in terms of you know, supporting you know, the servers and things like that and how you're happy to contribute to keep the game going, obviously we live in a, you know, a capitalist world, and it's not just 
Frontier needing to keep the lights on with the servers and everything else, they also need to turn a profit. So are you happy not only to chip in to keep the servers running, but also to make sure that Frontier developments are making a decent profit, return on investment for their shareholders and investors? Because that's what you'll be doing. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> I, I guess that one's a sort of think through, isn't it? You know, it, but at the end of the day, what you're the the two things aren't really disconnected, are they? Because no. at the end of the day, what if they can't make a living out of what they're doing? There's no dishonesty in making a living out of something. If they can't make a living out of what they're doing, they're not going to put the game up. So actually, the two things are part of the same thing. If the yeah. game is not going to exist then you know what you're actually doing is paying for the game to exist you are still paying for it to exist whether the shareholders are making a profit or not in terms of my my connection to this you know and i you know I, i've invested uh, a lot of time into elite dangerous in terms of my connection to this my connection to this is very very strong and you know and there is no way in which i would want to see the company that is producing this game go down or to to stop producing this game so yeah, the two things don't, you know, it doesn't really become an either or. So it's not really part of the equation. To be fair to Alan, you know, I mean, he he obviously has like a, a kind of uh, like a like a psychological um, principled need, you know, um, to you know to justify his gameplay, you know, and, and I can completely understand that uh, because he's not. On the forums, telling people that Frontier are, are really cheeky to ask for money to run servers because he's not doing that. He's just saying that he'd prefer it a different way, which I'm fine with. But I'm just thinking, you know, as we said, you know, I don't begrudge Frontier profit and I don't begrudge paying him a sub because ultimately, you know, I probably just look at it a bit differently from Alan because. Um, and I have played World of Warcraft, and I, I was happy paying the subs because I was playing the game. And then as soon as I didn't want to play the game, I didn't pay the subs, you know. And that's how I looked at it. You know, I, I, I didn't feel that I needed because if if I got to the point where I felt that I need, I was engaging in this sunken cost thing, which Alan's referring to. Obviously, I didn't really want to play the game if I was that, you know, in that kind of mindset that I, you know, I was thinking, shit, I'm paying all this money. I need to play the game, but I'm not playing the game. Well, why am I not playing the game? Well, because I'm doing other stuff. For me, it would, it would take a very short amount of time for me to realise, you know what, I'm just going to cancel my subscription. But, you know, I, I, it's just it's just a question of perception, I guess. Well, my, my objection to subscription games over the years has really been that I think if you're, if you're paying a subscription to play a game, I personally believe the software itself should be free. I really struggle with games where, you know, you see it in the shops with like a 40 quid price tag on the disc. And then on top of the 40 quid price tag for the disc, you then have to pay money to actually be able to play it. And to me, that's a product that's on the shelves that's not fit for purpose. And I think that if you were to... Quant- I don't like monthly subscriptions because, again, like Alan, I get very busy and I don't always have time to play games. But I think if people were to be honest and upfront and to quantify how much you were subscribing for, then actually that would be very different. If you were to say to me, give us 30 quid and you get 30 hours of gameplay time, and at the end of that 30 hours, you have to pay another 30 quid, I can then kind of, not only can I pay that and I can decide how long it's going to take me to play those 30 hours, but I can then compare that 
against other gaming experiences that I have on offer. So I've got something I'm like, you know, um, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed about the number of hours I've sunk into FTL. You, it's hard to kind of put value on a game because I spent £3.50 on FTL and it's take it's given me like 40 hours of entertainment. There've been other games that I've gone out and paid 40 quid for and, you know, you whip through it in 12 hours and it's done and you trade it in. Um, so I think there's a kind of, for me on a monthly subscription, it's kind of, it's the same reason I don't like pay and display car parks. You're asking me to predict the future of how much time I am going to be spending doing this thing. And I don't like doing that because I don't have, I don't have the information. I don't know how long I'm going to be parked for. I don't know how long in the next month I'm going to spend playing this game. And like Alan says, in some respects, it's not even a question of the actual cost. Cause I mean, I had a streaming subscription with, I think love film, it's like five quid a month. But if I got to like the end of a month and I hadn't remembered to watch anything on it, I would kind of think, well, that's five quid that I would have probably enjoyed more if I'd just rolled it up and smoked it. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, but you wouldn't then... You, well, I, I, it's, it's, I know it's down to human psychology. Would you intentionally sit down and watch a shit movie just because you didn't want to feel that you'd wasted five quid? Well, no, I mean, there's always stuff that I could watch. You know, I mean, I had a huge bookmarked list of things where I thought, oh, yeah, I want to watch that, I want to watch that. And you just... Sometimes life is just too short to play games or watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're officially banned you from all future podcasts. You didn't podcasts. hear that <laughs> Shut up, shut up. It was one little point made, and I will, I will you know, indicate this because this is part of my teaching. Uh, the idea of paying for things you don't want, do you sit down in front of a film that you, you know, that you don't like? Yeah, you do in the right environment. You sit in a cinema, and if you sit in a cinema and, and five minutes in you realise it's a rubbish film, the amount of times people get up and walk out is an awful lot less than the amount of times that they sit there and endure it. You know, is that not just because we're you know, at heart quite an optimistic nation and we're hoping it's going to get better before the end? No, it's culturally, it's culturally embedded because you've bought the ticket. This is yeah. the point. When That's you make cost fallacy, yeah. yeah. When you make the purchase, you know you, there, there is a psychology to buying things. When you look at stuff on the shelf, um, you've you, more often than not between the point that you look at it on the shelf and the point that you actually pay for it at the till, you have visualised owning the item. And similarly, when you have bought the ticket for the film, you have already. Um, purchased the the time of enjoyment, so you 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 have this sort of negative flip in terms of your engagement with the film because if it, even if it goes badly, you are damn well going to sit there because you've paid for it. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because what will happen is you'll actually try and rationalise it to yourself afterwards as well. Oh, yeah. it wasn't so bad. But the interesting thing is, I is it must be truly damning on a film. For people that have paid to watch it to actually get up and leave, yeah. your film must be really shit because, I mean, that psychology, that, that psychological phenomenon is very strong. Yeah, you are. Sunken cost. You are positively engaged to be a receptor in that regard. And there's, there's huge amounts of psychological study on this where basically you bought the ticket, so you want to be entertained. You've walked in there um, with a very, very positive outlook to what you are going to experience. So to, you know, to, to destroy that positive outlook takes an awful lot of work. So it takes the film has to be terrible. Okay, well, seeing as we're crashing off topic, just as a little aside then, what was the last cinema film that you actually got up and walked out of? 
Vampires. I don't even know that one. Is that the John Carpenter one? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, I do know that one. Uh, uh, Jarvis? Never done it, actually. Really? Uh, no, although having said that, had I gone to see Hudson Hawk at the cinema, <laughs> I would have—I nearly walked out of my own living room. <laughs> I loved Hudson Hawk. Such an awful do. film. A lot of people absolutely rave about Hudson. I do rave such, about it. Such a good, such a cult film. You know? And do you, know, do you know what was great? Was the first five minutes was so inspired. I actually thought, God, this film's going to be absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I've, I've I've never walked out of a film. Really? No, I've 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 walked out to complain because there've been projection problems. And oh, I've that done that. Is, yeah, yeah. I've, I've complained. Yeah, I've complained that the project the it's out of focus. I've complained that the door behind the projector room was open so that it was shining the outline of a door on the cinema screen. <laughs> now the only one I've actually walked out of is the uh, Da Vinci Code, the first Da Vinci Code. I thought that was absolutely awful. <laughs> I saw that on a plane. I'd have had to have been quite committed to <laughs> If you find a way to... And it, you, you take a parallel to Star Citizen. Within Star Citizen and the funding model of Star Citizen, there is such positivity around the, the delivery. Okay, so they've ratcheted up the expectation level, um, but there is such positivity around the delivery because so many people have invested so much. And when you look at some of the purchases that they've done from the outside, you look at it and go, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. But from the inside, you know, they have effectively demonstrated their support. That's how they see part of that purchase. And I think that's the same psychologically for some of the people on uh, the Elite Forum. They see it as, you know, as a badge and a banner to, to indicate their, their allegiance and their, you know, almost like their, their football supporting, you know, sort of uh, uh, connection. To disturb that in any way is a really difficult thing. It's just like, you know, in, in football when um, uh, they put the season ticket price up. You know, you're always going to find some people that are going to have a problem with that. Okay, well, I'm sure this topic is going to continue to, to rumble on and we will keep you updated in future episodes. Okay, Facebook question time. Uh, first question this week comes in from Colin Ford, who says, who is your first PvP target uh, going to be and why? It's going to be you, Colin. I'm after you. I'm coming for you specifically. Yeah, because you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, uh, you and Leeming. I bought a copy of X Rebirth last month to tie me over until ED came out, and it is a truly shocking game in terms of gameplay and graphics. Has anyone else played it? John? No. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't played it. Although we, I hear it's shit. We were all too clever because we didn't bother. From Grant, Psycho Cow. When he grows oh, no, up, will Foss try and watch The Dark Crystal again? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> From Michael Hughes, we have approved commander names, but can play multiple characters, all with different names. But will we be able to recognize friends and indeed enemies when playing an alternative character, or indeed them, us? Uh, thank you for your... Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to throw this one over to John. Well, it's a good question. We don't know for sure, but I think that we do need to be able to have alternative characters that aren't necessarily available um, to, you know, it shouldn't be available account to account. Um, because, for instance, I might enjoy playing with Fozza one night on my main um, character, and then I'll say to Fozza, oh, I'm really tired, I'm going to go to bed, because he, <laughs> he's boring me. And then I can log off that character and then go on my alt, and then go and, you know... 
Or, for instance, maybe I want to go and play as a dirty federal pig or something like that. I don't know. There is a valid point here, though, because we've all pre-registered our reserved commander name. But is that, I mean, is that your account? Do you always play with that name? Or can you kind of, can you even multi-character? I think they've said along the line that you can have multiple characters. So I think what they're going to do is, as backers, when we log into our account for the first time, probably with our email address or whatever, we'll have one character on there ready, reserved with whatever name, and then we can create additional ones. So Commander Diggler might yet take to the skies. There you go. It could happen. It's very cool to have skyboxes everywhere, Luke Chalice. Yes, we love skyboxes. And the what? idea that they are they are put in multiple locations and that um, uh, that it's generated from the system is, is very, very cool. So, yes, really like that. So we've got a question from Rory Scarlett. Uh, one thing that struck me, the Frontier universe seemed really underpopulated. I'm guessing that the ship-owning population will be less than 1%. So what part, if any, will the other 99% of the NPC population play in Elite Dangerous? John. Some of them will be, you know, traders, and the rest of them, I don't know, they'll be on no, a planet. Yeah, I was going to say, they're all, they're, all, they're all there for famine fodder, you know? Yeah, they're all that's supposed it. They're all going to die in a famine. All plague. Or gonna... Cleaners, fertilizer. Slaves. Slaves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we took that drinking break. This is much more entertaining than the first half. From Steve Trum. Okay, obviously we, we need as accurate an answer as possible. What are the ideal specifications of the machine I must buy to run the game to the absolute max? And if anybody's playing the Lave Radio drinking game, you know that you need to now finish your drink. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and I'm going to put this one first of all to Foz. Uh, you need a quad-core PC with a graphics card with at least two gigabytes worth of RAM on it and uh, as much system memory as you possibly get your hands on. Just go onto a website that stocks PC components, sort of, you know, by individual individual element. Go to each section, do sort by price descending. <laughs> click the first thing on the list on each page, put those all in a box, and I think you'll be golden. Okay. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think it's probably the, that's probably the best advice we could give anybody. Okay, and a quick shout out to uh, the the crew of the Mobamark Three, otherwise known as Whiskers. This has seen the end of the Elite community's first charity campaign, that of Movember. And I can say it's been a fantastic journey for everybody involved. There's been all sorts of uh, some fun and capers along the way. Uh, we've had a Movember song, which was uh, which was wonderfully put together by uh, by Grant Psycho Cow, uh, with lots of participation from the community. Uh, we've had some interesting pictures created by Mobius. We've had a great story written by Drew Wagar. Um, it's all just been a great bundle of laughs for a month. And I can reveal that the, the total amount raised at the end of the month was £4,699, which I think everybody can agree is a fantastic amount. Uh, well done to everybody that took part. And again, thank you to uh, the guys at Frontier, Michael, Igor, Mike and Ashley for helping us along. And I and that was a fantastic community event. And thank you again to everybody that took part into it. Feedback. This week, we've got some new feedback. Uh, comes, comes in from LinkDNA, who says he's gutted that we repeated episode 21 as episode 22. We didn't actually. Episode 22 was a new episode. We just forgot to change the uh, the information in the stream, uh, which you've now done. So if you actually did listen to episode 22, you would have heard that it was, in fact, a new episode. So sorry about that. But thank you for leaving us a five star review anyway. And also, there were some reviews in for Escape Velocity. Uh, thanks very much for everybody for the support for the series. It's really great. 
Okay, well, that's going to do it for another episode of Lave Radio. Thank you very much to Alan, John, and Chris. If you'd like to contact the show, you can at info at laveradio.com, on Twitter at Lave Radio, on Facebook, Facebook forward slash Lave Radio. And if you'd like to call us on Skype and leave us a voice message, you can at lave.radio. If you'd like to take part in Retro Lave or the Conclave, you can by adding me to your Skype. I'm Fozzer101. That's it for another episode. We're powering down the Sidewinder, and we'll see you next time. And uh, it mentions about the Bernard Star News. Bernard Star, it's like it's Bernard Cribbins, uh, <laughs> singing singing live at the Dog and Swan this Saturday and every Saturday. <laughs> There's too much Doctor Who been on recently. <laughs> Bernard Star, I love it. Yeah. <laughs>